don't know about you, but so many people are disappointed and disillusioned with church in so many ways. Many are de-churched because they're so fed up and deconstructing their faith because they, can, they can't take it any longer. Issues such as leadership scandals, hypocrisy in the church, issues around politics and race, sexuality, gender, masks, vaccines, false prophecies of the last year, science and faith, the corporate culture that seems to sometimes invade the church, judgmentalism of Christians, church infighting and abuse of one another around difficult areas, church in culture of how is the church responding to the difficulties of a post-Christian culture? Are we attacking or are we retreating? And Overall, more than ever before in my lifetime, which isn't very long, about 23 years, <laughs> there seems to be more than ever, more than ever of these issues which are dividing, disappointing, dejecting, and causing people to deconstruct their faith to the point of abandoning it altogether. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, an example in the church where the church healthily deconstructed false teachings in the church, removed the distortions, but without losing the beauty and truth of the gospel and orthodoxy. My wife and I moved to Vancouver back in 2004. And we rented this amazing house with a beautiful backyard and it had like a garden area at the back. And it was pretty barren. It was pretty obviously, we thought it had just been left unattended. And we, we saw some weeds in the garden area and we thought, oh, we've got to sort this out. So we went down with a wheelbarrow to the back of the yard, to the garden area, and we got on our hands and knees, and we just started to dig up all the weeds, and we filled two wheelbarrows full of all these weeds. We got under the soil and got all these kind of, kind of weed bulbs, and we just dug them all up, and literally, there was two wheelbarrows overflowing with these hidden bulbs, and we thought, oh, it's going to be weeds, it's going to be horrible. We were very proud of ourselves. And we left behind this perfectly neat but lifeless patch of soil. A couple of days later, we met our neighbors for the first time. And they said, oh, we're so glad you're here. And that's a beautiful home. But the best bit about the home is that garden at the back of the yard. You know, come the spring, you wait. All those amazing tulips are going to burst forth and it'll just be people come from all over to see the amazing exotic tulips that the previous owners had, had planted. And you think throughout the rest of the year, it's just little weeds and it's barren, but you wait till spring. Lizzie and I just kind of hid the wheelbarrows full of the tulip bulbs that we'd, we'd ripped up. See, in our passion to rip up the weeds... In our passion to get rid of all the stuff that we thought was destructive, which is destructive. We got on our hands and knees and we ripped them up, but we couldn't tell what was weed and what was tulip. What was death and what was life. And in our exuberance, we ripped the whole thing up and left a beautifully empty garden 
but one that had no life, one that was dead. And so many today are looking at the church, looking at the false teachings in the church and trying to go, we've got to get rid of the weeds, okay? we've got rid of the weeds. And, and they're start, starting to dig up the weeds, but if we're not careful, I see so many people starting to dig up the good and the beautiful of the gospel and leaving nothing behind. How do we dig up the weeds that come into Christian teaching, that come into the church without digging up the eternal gospel and orthodoxy of our faith. To guide us in this journey, we're going to look at Acts chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn and begin in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. Beginning in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers... Unless you were circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers. You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to? to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Paul and Barnabas heard of this false teaching coming into the church by Christians, believers who had come from the tribe of the Pharisees. And Paul and Barnabas said, hang on a minute, that's not right. That's not right. And in every generation, we also have to be on guard to protect the gospel from things that we say, hang on, that's not right. Because of continued sin, because of con the continued activity of the defeated devil, because of the trends in our culture, the secular-rooted trends in our culture, we have to always be on guard against false teaching creeping into the church. This is every generation. We have to deconstruct what is not of God and reaffirm what is the gospel and what is of God. We've got to get on our hands and knees and dig up the weeds, but take care of the tulips. We see this throughout history. The Old Testament prophets called out false teaching in the people of God. Jesus called out false teaching amongst the Pharisees. Remember, he went into the temple and turned over the tables where they distorted the teaching of God. In the 2nd to 5th century, all of the great historic creeds of the church 
those great statements of faith, were written in response to false teaching coming into the church. People were teaching dodgy things about Jesus. They went, no, we've got to get together and write a statement on the divinity of Jesus. People were starting to rip things out of Scripture because they didn't like it. They got together and went, oh, no, we have to decide on what is Scripture and what isn't Scripture. Every generation has to protect the gospel, protect the tulips, but rip up the weeds. In the 16th century, the great Protestant Reformation. Reformation. We have got to protect the great solas, that sola scriptura. Only by scripture, only by grace, only by faith can we be saved. And on and on, 1974, the great Lausanne Covenant. And when I grew up, I remember in conversations, just as a teenager, great debates in the church about our whole, are the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today or not? And so on and so forth. And today, have you noticed we're living in a fresh season of great questions around our faith? Seems that the last 18 months whilst we've been in this pandemic have only heightened the divisions and the questions in the church around some big issues. And I believe it's because the Holy Spirit is causing our church to once again get on its hands and knees and dig up the weeds, but not throw away the tulips, the life of the gospel. I see, and it breaks my heart, so many doing what my wife and I did, getting rid of the gospel because we didn't like the weeds. So how do we do it? In Acts chapter 15, I want to give us a roadmap for how we deconstruct in a healthy way, in a biblical way, but reconstruct and reaffirm the beauty of the gospel and orthodoxy. The first step is this, and we see in this passage, first thing we to do is welcome the questions, welcome the conversation. In verse 5, it says, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I love that... The Bible makes it very clear here that these were brothers, not enemies. Peter says, brothers, let's reason together. Even though we disagree, we're going to welcome the conversation because we're family. I grew up sometimes in church where good questions were closed down for being rebellious. Have you ever, did you ever feel that way in church sometimes? You know, I wanted to know, I was a kid, particularly in youth group, I wanted to know why God wanted things the way he wanted. You know, I remember in that typical youth evening about sexuality and sex, all that kind of stuff, and one person, a, a poor, unsuspecting young youth leader, was trying to lay it out. I was going, that's all, that's fine. But why? Why? Why that way and not this way? I lived in a school with no other Christians. I lived in the north of England, very secular atheistic culture. I wasn't around morality defined by the Bible. I was defined by morality defined by culture. And I was like going, why? Why is that wrong? I remember my youth leader just looking at me going, you're just so rebellious. You're so disruptive. I almost got kicked out of my dad's own church. It was like, just be quiet. Don't ask the tough questions. Man, if there's one thing I'm always going to do is ask the tough questions. I'm not afraid of tough questions. Tough questions are a portal to deepened faith, right? And they reason together. 
And I love the fact that they call each other brothers. I've been so hurt for God's church that the last 18 months, people have disagreed with each other, but not treated each other as brothers or sisters. They've treated each other as enemies. Secondly, so just to conclude that, we have a space here of tough questions welcome. We have Alpha. We're going to start some things in the fall. We're going to do pastor Q&A. All tough questions welcome. Because I can guarantee if you've had that tough question, I've had it as well. All right. Secondly, listen with love. Listen with love. So easy, isn't it? When you see something that you think, ooh, I think they're saying this. I think they're going to do this. Boom. And we go on the attack. And yet what we see here in this text is they made space, the apostles made space, to listen to what these believers were going through. It would have been so easy to close them down, wouldn't it? To go, oh, how could you be so wrong? But they actually said, come with us to Jerusalem. We're going to meet with the apostles. And guess what? You get to go first. You get to speak first. We want to listen. I think it's so important to begin all these conversations with listening for two reasons. First of all, we normally have wrong assumptions of where the other person's coming from. We normally have wrong assumptions. The last year, people have cancelled each other because you assume that's what they mean. Right? And I've had people tell me, I'm out, I'm leaving the church, I can't believe, and then write sentences about what they think about me. And they've never once come to me and said, hey, is this what you mean? And I'm okay, I'm thick-skinned, I can take it, but I'm heartbroken that we're not actually just going, hey, before I judge you, which judgment is different to judgmentalism. We can actually judge the gospel, that's okay. But before you do that, make sure you actually are judging what I actually mean. And so that we listen to each other. So there's a great phrase that we have in our home and in relationships, and I really want this to be a great phrase in our church. If you disagree with someone, take them out for coffee and just simply say this, hey, Help me understand where you're coming from. And then secondly, we need to listen, not just though actually we understand where each other's coming from, but secondly, because most people come to their faith decisions and their, de- and their deconstruction through a, a traumatic experience. Most people are struggling because of a wound or fear. And until they are listened to, until they feel heard, they will never be able to listen. We do this on Alpha. We create a space for people to be heard, to share their story. I think Alpha is one of the best places to sort through all of these things on a journey together. But we make sure people go, hey, this is about listening first. Because until I hear your story, I actually don't know what to say. This last year, on all the debates that have been going on, I've been able to sit down and go, help me understand where you're coming from. And people care. The reason why I'm so angry about this, because I'm Asian American. My wife is too scared to go to the grocery store by herself. This isn't neutral for us. I've had parents come to me and say, yeah, This isn't neutral for me because 
I know what my kids are being taught in school and I'm scared by that. I'm scared that they're going to abandon the gospel. Yeah, my, my friends, my best friends, my kids are going through questions of sexuality. This isn't neutral for me. We have to listen to each other. Understand the pain, the fears. Someone came to me this, way, this week and said, yeah, people just keep saying I'm narrow-minded or whatever, but I'm genuinely worried about what's going to happen in our society for Christians if we don't take a stand. Now hear me hear very clearly. I'm not saying on all, of those, on all of those little examples, I'm not saying they're right or wrong in giving those examples. What I am saying is they're absolutely valid their emotions and their fears and their experiences are true. We have to listen to each other and love each other. Number three, we've got to take false teaching seriously. Verse two, Paul and Barnabas were in sharp dispute with these guys and Paul interrupted his missionary journey to go sort this out. Some would like us just to stay quiet. And yet, in order to see the gospel passed down from generation to generation, orthodoxy thrive and see the kingdom of God come in our city, when we see it under attack, we can't stay quiet. That doesn't mean we go on the attack and be mean to people. It just means that we have to clarify in love and humility, no, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Paul, the most successful Christian of the, of the time, interrupted his journey and went, we've got to go and sort this out because if we don't preserve the tulips, they're going to be gone. Christianity is only ever one generation away from being extinct. That's why Paul wrote all of his letters. He said, I've got to take this seriously. There's false teachers. Only one of Paul's letters was written in a neutral environment, the book of Ephesians. Every other letter was written to tackle false teaching. Now, at this point, I know that many here are going, yeah, yeah, you get them. That's not what I'm saying. Because I'm not a spokesperson for your particular hobby horse. No, but we do have to clarify the gospel. We do have to stand up for orthodoxy in a, in a loving and humble way. And so we will be talking about it. Many people have said, but yeah, well, you haven't really said much the last 18 months in all of these issues. And I've been criticized for saying too much or not saying enough. And that's okay. I've got thick skin and good friends around me who will take me out for a beer. But the reason why we haven't, over the last 18 months, kind of said, okay, let's get a forum together, is because I know, as you know, that there are timings involved. And I've known, over the last 18 months, many of these issues, we weren't ready to listen yet. It was such a furnace that anybody who said anything was immediately opposed. And that's okay, because it was a, a furnace environment. But as the temperature comes down a bit, which I think it is, starting in the fall, we are going to be talking about these things. 
We are going to be deep diving. Sometimes on a Sunday, but most of the venues will be midweek because we need to deep dive. I may even call it deep dive Thursdays. I don't know. But to look at these issues theologically and have forums and Q&A so that we can go on a journey together. But we will be talking about it. And the right time is this fall. Fourthly, no matter what we do, we must maintain the authority of the Bible. We must maintain the authority of Scripture. Acts 15, the disciples got together, and we didn't read the whole, the whole debate because it would have taken too long, but they come to a place where they go, well, experience tells us this, the Holy Spirit was poured like this, and it is affirmed in Scripture. As Christians, we believe in the authority of Scripture, and that's one of the biggest things under attack right now. Tim Keller opens up his wonderful article on Bible and race like this. This is how he opens his article. He says, next to sex and gender, the subject of race is the most discussed topic in our culture today. It is natural and right for Christians to speak in these conversations out of their personal experience. But since we believe that the Bible has the right to interpret our experience and to, to critique every culture, we must look at it as our final authority. The spirit of the age right now is encouraging people to pick and choose bits of the Bible they want to believe and interpret it the way that you would like it to be interpreted. That's just in line with the culture of radical individualism and postmodernism. That's just in line with those trends. And I get why people want to do that, because I wanted to do that. When I was so upset with the church in my mid-20s, I was so dejected, so disillusioned. I left the church altogether, and I really didn't want anybody to say anything about the Bible anymore because I'd seen it misused. I'd seen it abuse people. I'd seen people take things out of context. I'd see people tell me science and faith aren't compatible. Just shut up and believe. I'd seen people take, like, obviously, secondary issues, like non-gospel issues, but make them primary, that if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. I'd seen all this abuse, and I had nothing to do with it. So I left the church and lived the life of London, whatever that means. Lots of oasis and clubbing. I came back to faith about two and a half years later, not because of the Bible, not because of church, it's because of Jesus. And Jesus reminded me that this is Christianity, not churchianity right? That the church is always going to be a broken bunch of sinners. So stop resting your faith on the behavior of Christians. It's a strange orthodoxy. It's not orthodox that we go, oh, I can't stand pastors as I could, and therefore I'm rejecting Jesus. Whereas Jesus was the first one to say, you evil bunch. <laughs> he did. And the disciples went, harsh but fair. <laughs> I had to grow up a bit and go, actually, my faith isn't about how great pastors are. Actually, my faith tells, them, tells me they're broken. But I couldn't reject Jesus. I've seen too much, experienced too much, knew too much that I had to follow him. And he restored my faith in pastors. I went to a church and I met some pastors and I thought, actually, you're on the right track. I like you. 
And then I went to seminary, and it was really important for me. I went to seminary, because I'm getting to the Bible a bit now. I went to seminary, and it was a multi-denominational seminary, which meant there wasn't a, it wasn't a denomination where the denomination could just celebrate its own beliefs on secondary issues. And I went to this seminary, and it was, there was Protestants of all, Pentecostals, Reformed, non-Reformed. I remember sitting down with Mennonites and brethren going, I've never heard of you before. I remember being challenged, and I recognized during those four years of seminary the beauty of orthodoxy, that what I always thought was the stuff I hated, the stuff that I was rebelling against. I discovered I wasn't actually rebelling against orthodoxy. I was rebelling against false teaching. The Bible didn't say the stuff I thought it said. And this wasn't liberal college where you just interpret the Bible how you want. This was historic orthodoxy going of, actually, the church has always interpreted the Bible this way, and I went, oh, what a relief. And then there were secondary areas of disagreement. I go, oh, you mean we can disagree on those areas and still be followers of Jesus? So yeah, you can. There are different interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2, which are both orthodox interpretations. I went, oh, that's good news. I remember sitting down with my mentor at seminary, my tutor, we were signed a tutor, his name was J.I. Packer. And Jim Packer, who's a famous, amazing theologian with the Lord now, said to me, Gare, you're charismatic, aren't you? I went, yes, I am. He said, I'm not really. I went, I thought to myself, you will be after meeting me, but that's wrong. <laughs> and he said to me, look, I don't think it's a primary issue. So what I'm going to help you with, I miss this man. What I'm going to help you with, he said, there's good charismatic theology and bad charismatic theology. I want you to leave this college with good scriptural theology for the charismatic church, not the bad stuff. I want to have that I can respect it and that you hold to the integrity of scripture. See, I've discovered at seminary the beauty of orthodoxy, the beauty of the authority of the Bible. And I was in all my, all my sexual, uh, like sexual ethics classes at college going, but why, but why, but why? And then I realized, oh my word, God's design is good and beautiful. There are reasons why. It's not just arbitrary, an arbitrary historical God in a cultural context saying, ooh, don't do that. There's eternal designs which are beautiful, and there's really reasons why, which we, we have to start speaking about again. I see, and I'm so saddened when people, when they see the weeds, think they have to get rid of the authority of the Bible. Nothing's further from the truth. Okay, and then finally, humility. Humility. Paul, I can't believe how humble Paul was in this text. He was the great doctrinal teacher of the church, the most successful author. We're still reading his books. And yet, it would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for him to go, I can handle this, this is easy, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. I've got this. And it's so easy for all of us to go, I've got this, I know the truth. I'm a radical individual blessed with omnipotence and omniscience. I know the truth. But Paul knew it's unsafe outside 
of the gospel community to make big decisions like this. And so he went on the journey, a long journey, to Jerusalem. And I want you to know that I feel this way about myself, and I hope you do too, that I have blind spots. I have my own wounds through which I look at things. I have my own fears through which I look at things. I have my own culture through which I look at things. I'm an American, but a new one. And so I've got this cultural British thing going on, which is broken. Can I humbly suggest so is the American filter? Because the gospel is not American or British. The gospel is of the kingdom of heaven. And so when we approach these things, we have to be humble to go, I'm sure I have got it wrong in some ways. And therefore, I need to gather in the Christian community that together, together, we can see clearly. You, this, is the, this is the thing about blind spot. You don't know you've got a blind spot, but your friends do. That's the whole point of a blind spot. And so we need each other. I need people. And this is where I think the diversity of secondary opinion really matters, where there's people in our community who are more reformed or less reformed, more charismatic or less charismatic, more, and I could go on. And together, we bring that diversity. We are absolutely essential, on the fund, you know, fundamentally convicted about the essentials. But we need each other on the secondary things. Tim Kelly, in that same article on race, says this. It is important to say at the outset of this article that all of us read Scripture through the lens of our own culture, which partially distorts our view of its teaching. So when we discuss what the Bible says about race, we need to do so with humility and an openness to correction. Friends, we're a community where God's called us for such a time as this to get on our hands and knees and dig up the weeds that has hurt so many, that pollutes our gospel, that prevents the mission to our city. But as we get on our knees in humility and love and unity around Scripture, we can dig up those weeds but recognize the precious truth of the gospel and keep it planted and nurture it, protect it, water it. Because when we do that, there will be a time when they start to grow and our city is filled with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. I'd love you to close your eyes. Just between you and the Lord now. He's alive. He's here. This is the gospel. God, Jesus, is alive and He's with us. So just in your own heart, just respond to Him. And we're going to turn to worship because as we gather around Jesus, everything else becomes clear.
So Jesus, we worship you now. And we say that help us weed well and protect your gospel. Give us humble hearts, listening ears, treating each other as family, not enemies. That for generations to come, they may enjoy the great bloom of the gospel in our city.